0: Glad to have the opportunity to share with you some things about Acts chapter 7. Glad for your attendance here. Acts chapter 7, the longest speech in Luke and Acts. I find it to be difficult. So I was talking to some guys just earlier, and they said they appreciated that I said that to them. So now I'm saying it to you as well. Maybe you'll appreciate it. I find this to be sort of tough. What, what I find uh, tough about Stephen's speech is, um, what I find most tough, to, tough about it is the seeming irrelevance of a lot of what he says to the charges that are brought against him. So in other words, what in the world does this have to do with anything that, that we've been talking about? Why is he now surveying the entire history of Israel? How does that help the situation at all? So, like I say, I find that difficult. I'm not sure that I have the best answer for that for you, uh, but maybe you have some answers for us as well. We can go through it and talk about it, and we'll see what we come up with. Let's go through the the charges first for, for Stephen. He's been... Preaching, He's full of the Holy Spirit, and he's doing some miracles, and he's gotten into some arguments with some fellas from the Freedmen's Synagogue. This is in Acts chapter 6. And they're not capable of answering Stephen's um, charges and answering um, what he is saying. And so they haul him off. And it says in uh, verse 11, Then they secretly persuade. this is chapter 6, verse 11, They secretly persuaded some men to say, We heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. So there's, there's a charge against Stephen. Number one, he has been blaspheming God, and he's been blaspheming Moses. Alright, they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, so they came and seized him and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, this man never stopped speaking against this holy place and the law. So there's the second sort of charge. The temple and the law. Stephen has been speaking against the temple and the law. For we heard him say, this is verse 14, we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the synagogue looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Are these things true? And then he launches into it. Now, so we've had at least three different verses that give us charges against Stephen. He's been blaspheming God and Moses. He's been speaking against the law and against the temple. And he claims that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, that is the temple, and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Now, what do do we think? Where do these charges come from? Are any of them true, do you think? Has Stephen been saying this stuff? What, What has he been saying, do you think, that would lead people to, charge this or are they just completely making it up? I mean it does say after all in verse thirteen they are false witnesses. I guess we could say they're just making completely making the whole thing up. It has nothing to do at all with what Stephen's ministry has been up to this point. I wonder if you think that though. It has 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 Stephen been saying something or doing something that would lead them to come up with these specific <laughs> accusations against them. What do you think?
1: I think the last part of the indictment could be twisted around. Jesus did say something about destroying the temple, but He didn't say He would destroy the temple. And Jesus certainly preached changes coming to the Mosaic standard of the law, but not in the language that, he, that was being... I think it, was, it could be twisted. The last part of the indictment could be twisted around saying, well, yeah, yeah, he was talking about this Jesus guy destroying the temple and, and, and destroying the law of Moses and these customs and changing, which is partially accurate, but maybe twisted around to be be more condemning of Stephen in this accusation.
0: Yeah. Uh, we, we do read elsewhere about, there, there is an association in the Gospels with Jesus and something about destroying a temple. Um, that comes up in the trial before Caiaphas in Mark and Matthew. Now, Luke doesn't have it. I mean, we're reading the author Luke here in Acts chapter 7, but if you go back and read the trial scene in the Gospel of Luke, uh, the the trial scene before Caiaphas is very abbreviated in the Gospel of Luke in comparison to what we get in Mark and Matthew. And then the Gospel of John is just completely different. Um, where you get more of Annas than you do of Caiaphas. Caiaphas just mentioned briefly. And then, of course, you get a lot more Pilate in the Gospel of John. But uh, so in in the Mark trial scene, now it's not in the Luke trial scene, um, but it's in the Mark and Matthew trial scene. I'll go to Mark here. This is what it says. It's sort of similar. This is uh, chapter 14, verse 55. The chief priests, Mark 14, 55, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin We're looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They cannot find any. For many were getting false testimony. So we're getting false testimony against Stephen in Acts chapter 6. Here it's a false testimony against Jesus. Uh, And the testimony did not agree, Mark says. But verse 57, some stood up and gave false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands. And in three days, I will build another not made by hands. Yet their testimony did not agree even on this. Now, actually, in the Gospel of Mark, that is never recorded, right? Jesus, this is the first time we've ever heard of this, if we're just reading the Gospel of Mark. Mark does not record Jesus saying he's going to destroy any temple and rebuild a temple or anything like that. So this is the first we've gotten it in the Gospel of Mark. It's the same way in Matthew. You get it in the trial scene in Matthew, uh, but you don't hear about it it ever before then. So if you're just reading the Gospel of Mark, I guess you could think, oh, well, these are false witnesses. They're just completely making it up. Jesus never said anything like that. But we've got a little more information. And we've got John chapter 2 stuck in our heads as well. And that needs to be brought in here. And so John chapter 2. Uh, presents the, the the bit about the cleansing of the temple at the time of Passover, and it says here in verse 18, So the Jews replied to him, What sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Now, he's he's at the temple at the time. So they would, I suppose, naturally think, well, he must be talking about the temple that, you know, however they would phrase it, the temple that Herod built or whatever, this physical building. Destroy this one, and I'm going to raise it up in three days. Of course, we read a little bit later in verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. So we do have, this is the one place where Jesus actually says, um, something about destroying the temple, right? Um, well, the one place. Uh, we should qualify that a little bit. It, what else does he say about destroying the temple? Matthew 24. Okay, there, there's the other bit about when he's actually talking about the physical building at that point. Do you think these great stones are, you know, beautiful? Or there's, not, there's going to be a time when not one stone will be left on another. So Jesus did say some things... It's not exactly what's reported about him in Mark in the trial scene. And it's hard to know what Stephen, I mean, unfortunately, we don't have the first sermon of Stephen. We only have this defense. So it would be nice to have, like, what has Stephen actually been saying that leads to this particular charge? Uh, Could he have been reflecting on that saying of Jesus in John chapter 2 about, you know, Uh, the temple and what is now the temple is the church and, you know, um, that temple was destroyed and and it was raised up. Could it have been something along those lines? Might he have been saying there will come a time when this particular temple, would he have said that Jesus is going to do it? I don't know that he would have linked Jesus particularly to destroying the building of the temple, but maybe he's been talking about that. So there is some some sort of validity to the charge in Acts chapter 6, verse 14, although I think as Tim was saying, it seems to have been mangled somewhere. And Luke says it's a false testimony. So that leads credence to the idea that it's mangled somehow. I'd like to know what Stephen was saying. I bet he was saying something about a temple being destroyed, Uh, but I'm not exactly sure what he was getting at when he said it. Also, interesting at the
2: end of uh, 6 7 that is the priests are one of the ones that are highlighted mm. as being obedient. So, yeah. maybe that falls somewhere in there too. Yeah, that's a
0: good thought. Um, temple officials are, uh, are becoming obedient to the gospel. All right, so changing the customs Moses handed down to us, you think Stephen's been saying something about that? Like what? Yeah. So probably Stephen has been saying something. Maybe sacrifices not being necessary. Maybe he's been saying that. Like Jesus is our once for all sacrifice. We don't need to do this. This was a shadow of things to come. I wish we had what Stephen had been saying. But we have to get at it through these charges. I bet he has been saying something about maybe about food laws. Um, although I'm not real convinced about that, because Peter still seems to not be exactly sure about that point, because um, that comes a few chapters later. Um, I mean, maybe about some other things. Yeah, no? I, I may have missed it, but I mean,
1: just the whole idea that Gentiles can to Christ is
0: problematic. Yes, yeah. I, I wonder if Stephen has been saying that, you know, because this is a little early in Acts for that to become an issue, but maybe. Because um, it's only in the next chapter that we get an Ethiopian eunuch who was Gentile, maybe. We haven't got Gentiles. Samaritans fully
3: yet. Yeah, we haven't gotten Samaritans yet. Yeah, good,
0: good thought. So maybe he's been talking about the gospel is for all. I'm not sure. I bet he's been saying something uh, that would lead people to think, well, he's changing the customs of Moses. But I, I wish I knew what it was. Um, I mean, our options are maybe sacrifices, maybe something about Gentiles, maybe something about food laws, um, maybe Sabbath, maybe something about
1: the Sabbath. I doubt circumcision. I wouldn't think that. Yeah, you you wouldn't think
0: circumcision would come up in this discussion yet. Not yet. Right.
1: Uh, If uh, he had referred to Jesus in the new covenant, that could have made people nervous.
0: Okay, yeah, maybe so. a new, new covenant teaching, that would be different from the old covenant of Moses. He's changing things in In connection with that, what about you teaching the Lord's
2: Supper? You know, you think you think back to Acts 2, what, what were they continuing to teach? Well, the Apostles' Doctrine and the breaking of <coughs> bread and such. And maybe with the connection of Jesus mm-hmm. teaching about the blood of my new covenant and stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, that could cause. Special. You know, that, that, that could. I, I wonder, you know, when Jesus talked about this, and, and I assume... Early Christians, I mean, we get the record of Paul and the Lord's Supper in First Corinthians 11. You know, we're going around eating Jesus' flesh and drinking Jesus' blood. You know, what what do y'all do on Sunday? Well, we drink the blood of Jesus. Well, I mean, there's it's pretty explicit in the law of Moses. You do not drink blood. That's something you are not supposed to do. And so that could lead to this, you know, they're drinking blood. You know, they're changing the customs
3: of Moses. Yeah. Yeah didn't like the, the challenge of Jesus's own claims that of messiahship, the uh, religious leaders didn't didn't like that to start with. Even though they couldn't really counter his signs and wonders and all that, uh, even to the end, though they're still saying he's blaspheming. Yeah, you're
0: you're making a good point that not not just the fact that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, but the fact that Jesus claimed to be so much more than. Uh, what was expected to be of a Messiah. That, the fact that, the, you know, when the Messiah comes, according to Jewish thought, the Messiah is not God in the flesh. And so certainly not worthy of our worship, because we only, you know, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But these Christians, the, the law of Moses says that, right? Worship God only. These Christians are worshipping this guy that was crucified 40 days ago, from however long I mean, if you're talking about changing the customs of Moses, adding another god to the one you worship, that's changing the customs of Moses right there. So that's a good suggestion about what it might have been. Yeah.
1: Just, uh, <clears throat> if he's defending Jesus, Jesus didn't talk a woman at the well. Mm-hmm. no longer re- worshiping in yeah, so yeah, that's that, right. That, that could be a total destruction of their customs.
0: Yes. Yeah. Good thought. Um, fact, the John chapter four factors into this whole thing about the temple and the contingent nature of the temple, and then also changing the customs of Moses in that sense.
1: I wonder about Jesus. You know, it's interesting. The Hebrew writers, the one who camps out on Jesus' priesthood. Yeah. But Jesus being a priest of the Jews would run so counter to anything in the Torah because only Levites or the priesthood, and, and although Jesus was certainly in the line of the Messiah, church, yeah, the, he was certainly not in the Levitical priesthood yeah, line, and I right. wonder if, if, if Stephen had taught anything like that to Jews as he was teaching, because the Hebrew writer aims that at Jews, and we don't see a lot of that message preached to Gentiles about the priesthood of Christ. Um, yeah,
0: you're right, and and that goes back to the earlier suggestion that a lot of the priests were becoming obedient to the gospel, uh, but you, you're, it's also good to bring up the point that the only New Testament writing that emphasizes the priesthood of Jesus is, the, is Hebrews. And that, that, you know, Jesus is our sacrifice and all this, but the, the idea that he is a priest is not really explicitly brought out except in, in Hebrews. So would Stephen have been? I mean, it's possible. St- Stephen would have been saying, you know, even the priesthood has changed. And certainly Psalm 110 was a popular text for Christians to camp out in. Mostly verse 1, right? Uh, The Lord said to my Lord, set at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's the writer of Hebrews who emphasizes verse 4 about the priesthood of Melchizedek. But maybe some other Christians earlier on, maybe Stephen himself, had already seen the connection. Well, if Jesus is the one in verse 1, well, he's also the priest in verse 4, therefore the priesthood has changed and the customs of Moses are different. So we've got a lot of suggestions. Yeah, go ahead.
2: Could you kind of clarify what Stephen is? is he, I'm assuming he's a Hellenist. He's a Hellenist right? Yes, I think so.
3: Yeah, right. Kind of following on what Dale was talking about, is there an undercurrent of racism here? Ah. Uh, what about these synagogues that are mentioned? Yeah, I, we
0: don't know anything at all about the synagogue of the Freedmen. Um, and so I mean they're they're lost from history except in this particular verse. It'd be nice to know some more about them. Yeah, it could be some. I mean, racism in this or culturism we might say because you know, like race, right. they, they'd all be Jews. Right. Uh, but we're the Hebrew Jews and y'all are the Greek Jews and we're sort of we're the real Jews and y'all are sort of the pretend Jews. <laughs> uh, you could imagine something along those lines. Yeah.
2: And there's also such a parallel to jesus in, in this whole chapter mm. he is railroaded uh the the two witnesses are called he's called before the council uh he does different that he gives the the speech but when he comes he, forget, he forgives yeah he prays for right forgiveness he's martyred it's it's so parallel to jesus
0: yeah yeah that's a good thought Uh good so there, as far as changing the customs, this is all, I think, still in 6.14, right? Yeah, Jesus is going to destroy this place. We've talked about what what that charge may have been based on. He's changing the customs Moses handed down to us. We've got a lot of suggestions. would like to know specifically what that was. We don't. Uh, but we've got suggestions for what it might have been. If you go back one verse, we'll, we'll get off of the... Charges in just a minute, but this man never stopped speaking against this holy place and the law. I think uh, that we've already sort of discussed what that might be based on, because it's similar to verse 14. Blasphemous words against Moses and God—that's in verse 11. What do you think there? Any validity to the idea Stephen's going around blaspheming God? Do you think Stephen was blaspheming God? Anybody who thinks Stephen was blaspheming God? I, I think we're okay. Nobody thinks that's an accurate charge. Maybe if, they, if he was blaspheming
2: Moses, <coughs> then they attach that being God's man, and therefore. Yeah, I, I,
0: and, and we would agree. Moses is giving people the work of God. So if you're if you're going to say something against Moses, that you it's not a it's not a long jump to say well you are also speaking against God, right? Just like if we're saying well you know. Cut it. Romans out of the Bible, you know, Paul wrote that. Well, well, Paul gives us the word of God. I mean, if you're going to speak against Paul, in a, in a way, you're speaking against the revealed will of God here. So, we, yeah, it's not, a, it's not a long jump to make that, uh, for that assumption. Um,
3: I think they sense their loss of power, though, in mm-hmm. this movement. Because the synagogue of the Freedmen, it says, at least in my text, that they were Jews of serene in Alexandria, as well as Cilicia and Asia. So they were Jews living in these mm-hmm. outer areas. Um, sort of, you know, we've come back for this homecoming <laughs> and now we're hearing this new movement started. So we're very threatened. You know, we, we yeah. felt good going back home at least, knowing that Jerusalem was okay But now Jerusalem's not okay.
0: Yeah, right. And it's a loss of power. Uh, Yeah, I think we certainly see that in the Gospels with regard to Jesus and also here in the early chapters of Acts with the apostles. Good. So those are the charges that, oh, uh, one more, blasphemous words against Moses and God. We, we could imagine, as I mentioned earlier, the, the idea that these Christians are worshiping Jesus may also have led people to think, well, they're blasph- this is blasphemy against God, to worship this crucified man. That's blasphemy against God. So that might have come up as well. So that, those are the charges, and so ostensibly, Jesus, uh, Stephen is supposed to answer the charges Now, he does so in what I regard as a sort of peculiar way, Uh, let me say a roundabout way. He doesn't, well, no, he doesn't say, number one, you know, blasphemy against God, let me answer that. And then number two, the temple, here's what I think, he tells this story about Israel, a story they all know, I mean, he's not telling them anything they don't know, Uh, and It takes a while to get to the end. Like I say, this is the longest speech that Luke wrote that we have recorded for us. So the longest speech in Luke or in Acts. He starts out with Abraham. I, what I I'll, uh, I'll want to do is I want to just make some suggestions about what Stephen is getting at with this speech. And then I want to talk about a few problems in, um, in the speech. And hopefully that will be helpful to you and then have our uh, question and answer session. He he starts out with Abraham back before the call. At the call of Abraham is really where he starts. And he narrates the call. um, Goes on through. You finally get to Moses about verse 17. He talks about Moses a long time until, oh, uh, on into verse 38 or so, um, or, or maybe even a little later. So about 20 verses or mo- more about Moses. I, I think partly what he's doing by telling this long narrative, Summarizing Israel's history, first of all, I should say, this is not an answer to the charge at all, but um, he, is, he stands in a long line, uh, a tradition of narrating the history of Israel, right? We see this all throughout the Old Testament, uh, narrations uh, of Israel's history, if you I mean, Moses himself was involved in it in Deuteronomy 1 to 3. He has this long speech where he says, Israelites, this is what we've been up to for the past 40 years. And he just narrates Israel's history. And then you get to Joshua 24, and Joshua tells the story of Israel's history. And there are uh, uh, different different spots uh, throughout the text of Scripture. Psalm 78, I think Psalm 105, these are narrative. So he stands in this long line of tradition of narrating the history of Israel. I think one of the things he's doing in this is responding to that first charge, blasphemous words against Moses and God. There is nothing in this speech, I think, that could be characterized as blasphemy against God. In fact, he magnifies God that God has made certain promises to our ancestors, and God has kept those promises. God speaks, and God means what he says. Scripture is the authoritative word of God. I mean, he doesn't come out and say that, but by the way he uses scripture, it's pretty clear. He gives high respect to Scripture and how God speaks through Scripture. In fact, about the law particularly, he says, he characterizes it with this interesting phrase in verse 38, living oracles. These are living oracles. I'm not exactly sure what he means by that. It's the only time in the New Testament those particular words are used. Uh, But it seems to me that he means these continue to speak to us. Uh, these oracles that Moses received from God, they are living in the sense that, you know, the word of God is living and active. It, it continues to speak to us. It's relevant to us. It's certainly not irrelevant. It's not He's not blaspheming it at all or saying it's, um, it doesn't apply in our case or we should throw out the law of Moses. He's not at all saying that even if he, there is some validity to the idea that some things are changing, he still gives a great amount of respect to Scripture. He quotes Scripture a few times in here. So, as far as the idea of blasphemous words against Moses, it seems to me that the way he uses, the, he, he spends 25 verses on Moses, and Moses never comes off as the bad guy. It's pretty clear he gives a great amount of respect to Moses, um, and so that charge I think implicitly is answered in that fashion. Blasphemous words against God the same way. He's he, the whole speech is about how God keeps His promises. He doesn't come out and say, "No, I haven't been blaspheming God," but he illustrates uh, the fact that he gives a great amount of respect and reverence to God through the speech. He, So I, I would say that that's the answer to that charge. It's, it's a little bit roundabout. That's what I find difficult about it because he doesn't just come out and answer it. Uh, it's roundabout, but it can be related to the charges that he is facing. He also and it takes him a while to get there, but he does illustrate in this speech that Israel has a history of rebellion against God. Now, like I say, it takes him a little while to get there because he doesn't really get there until, oh, verses 20, oh, 27, I guess. Uh, Verse 25, he's talking about Moses, in, this is uh, Exodus chapter 2. This is uh, where the, the Israelites are mistreating one another. Moses has gone and killed an Egyptian. And Stephen doesn't criticize that action at all in, in this speech. and uh, And then the next day, you remember the story, there are a couple of Israelites that are in an argument, and Moses tries to intercede. It says in verse 25, he assumed his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through Him, but they didn't understand. Now he doesn't go out and say, you know, I can imagine what it, you know, wink, wink. You know, um, the, the point being that, you know, there's there was another guy came a long time later, you know, just a few days ago. He assumed that um, y'all would. Understand that God is giving deliverance through him. So this is parallel to Jesus here, but um, but of course they didn't understand. And in verse twenty seven, who appointed you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me the same way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Uh, and and so he goes on, and Israel has a history of rebellion against God. He from that point on he. Like I say, it takes him 25 verses to get there, but once he gets there, he sort of stays on it. And Israel, in the rest of the speech, continues to rebel, and, and he brings up the, the golden calf, and he uh, brings up uh, other instances where they rebel against God. So that's not exactly a charge, answering a charge against him. But it is a point that's relevant to what he's going through at this moment, that you, and, and you'll get there, right? You stiff-necked, uncircumcised hearts and ears people. Uh, you know, that's a way to win friends and influence people. Um, but where, where does he get that language? Stiff-necked. Where does he get that language? That's Yeah, because Moses said the exact same thing. I mean, if, he... he you know, the golden calf, you can go back to the Exodus 33, right after the golden calf. Exodus 33, verse 3, verse 5, God says, I'm not going to be with this people anymore. These people are stiff-necked, he says it a couple of times there. Or I think Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 6, uh, stiff, Moses says, stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in ears, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 10 calls Israel a people with uncircumcised ears. Chapter Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 26, a people Israel is a people uncircumcised in heart. So Stephen's just pulling that language straight out of the Old Testament and saying, "You are living up to the whole history of Israel. It's led to this moment where you are just like. I mean, they killed the prophets and you do too. That's who you are." And so this, this history of Israel's rebellion, he is emphasizing, is coming true right now. It's being fulfilled by your very actions at this moment. Not just what you did to Jesus, but what you continue to do to his body uh, through your persecution of the apostles and others. And so that's that's one of the things, I think, so one of the things Stephen is trying to do is answer the charge, blasphemy against God, blasphemy against Moses. That's not true at all. I think another thing he's trying to do is say you are living up to this history of rebellion that your ancestors have illustrated all throughout the Old Testament, and that's coming true right now. And another thing I think he wants to emphasize is the contingent nature of the temple. And that, so there is some validity. I, I don't think he completely says, no, no, that, that bit about the temple, that's completely made up. I think he, he is feeding into that. You know, it's true. You might not like me to say it, but it is true that this temple apparatus is no longer as relevant as it used to be, and it, you know what? It has never been as relevant as you think it is, because even in the Old Testament, God said, Do you think I can be contained in this house? What do you think? I mean, even the very moment of the dedication of the temple. You remember what Solomon prayed in 1 Kings chapter 8 when he's dedicating the temple.
3: He said, God, I don't pretend
0: that you can be contained in this house. I mean, the highest heavens cannot contain you. So this house is just your sort of a symbol of your dwelling among us. We recognize that. <coughs> and here Stephen quotes Isaiah 66. This is the very end of Stephen's sermon, right before he gets to the good parts, getting act uncircumcised. Uh, right before he gets to that, this is verse 48. But the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands, as the prophet says. This is Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Heaven is my throne, and the earth my footstool, what sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what will be my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? And so even though the he could have quoted several other passages in the Old Testament that say this, this temple cannot contain God. Uh, it's, it's not the only place God has revealed. And whereas in the Old Testament, it is the place he chose to set his name, that doesn't exhaust who God is or where he lives. And so there is some validity to the truth about the, the charge that he thinks this temple isn't very important. You know, I guess Stephen might have said, in some ways, guilty as charge on that account. But in saying that, I agree with Isaiah, I agree with Solomon, I agree with all the Old Testament prophets who made the very same point. We, we should also recognize, and I'd like to get on to other things, but uh, we, we should also recognize that the early Christians are not the only ones saying this kind of stuff about the temple. You know, The, the group out at Qumran, they were saying largely the same stuff about the impurity of the temple, God is going to come and... Now, they they thought it ought to be pure. They wanted to worship there, as far as we can tell. But the the impurity of the temple means, you know, that place. God has written it off. God doesn't live there um, because of the people that run it. They don't really love God and worship him. We're the sons of light. They're the sons of darkness. So there were other Jewish groups that were also making similar charges. And this Christian group, this, this Jewish group that recognizes Jesus as the Messiah, we might phrase it like that in these early chapters of Acts, are making similar charges against the, the temple, saying God's going to do something about it pretty soon.
3: It was the swamp.
0: The swamp, <laughs> yes,
3: I did. God's going to drain it, Great. yeah. Right. Okay. That's enough politics.
0: <laughs> <gonna> go <laughs> okay, Okay, I'll, I want to, in the uh, two minutes we have left, uh, maybe I can go a little longer for the Q&A. I'll, I'll cut out your questions and, and I'll just talk. Uh, I, I prefer that anyway. Um, there, there are some problems in this speech, some, some what I would say textual problems, and I just want to point them out. You might already know about them. Let's recognize them in, in terms of our Old Testament doesn't say exactly, it seems, what Stephen says, the Old Testament says. So that's, that's where we want to just recognize the issue, and I don't know if we'll come up with good answers, but that's, that's the problem. Okay, uh, first, at the very beginning, brothers and fathers, he replied, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran and said to him, leave your country and relatives and come to the land I will show you. All right, there already is a bit of a problem. Let me keep reading, though. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this land in which you are now living. Here's how Stephen represents it. Stephen says what happened was Abraham was living in Ur of the Chaldees. God came to him and said, I I want you to move. And so Abraham took his stuff and moved and settled in Haran. And then when Abraham's father died... What was his name, Terah? When Terah died, then Abraham left Haran. You know, so I'm. Here's Ur of the Chaldees up to Haran, down to the Promised Land, right? So that's when Abraham moved. Now, if you're reading Genesis 11 and 12, it doesn't look. That's not the what we would have said. I think what we would have said. You can go back and read this in case you don't believe me. But when I read it, Genesis 11 and 12, what I would expect. This is, this is how it would go. Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees for some reason and moved with all his family up to Haran. There he received the call of God go from this place to the land that I will show you. And uh, Terah was still alive at the time and Abraham left Terah alive in Haran and then moved down to the Promised Land. That's how it reads to me Genesis 11 and 12. All right, So this is bit of an issue. Y'all cool with that? All right, what do we do with that? Again, so there's two separate problems. Was Terah still alive or not when Abraham left Haran? That's one problem. The other problem is where did Abraham receive the call of God? I know we usually say he received it in Ur of the Chaldees. I think we usually say that because that's what Stephen says. But if you go back and read Genesis, it looks like he received it while he was living in Haran, because he already moves to Haran in Genesis 11. At the end of Genesis 11, Abraham moves to Haran. Genesis 12 is of course the call of Abraham. Okay, so Stephen thinks there is a call of Abraham before he moved to Haran, but while he was still in Ur of the Chaldees. Is Stephen right? Well, I'm not going to disagree with <laughs> Satan. I mean, the text says he's full of the Holy Spirit. You know, okay, fine. He's right. Um, he's not the only Jew at that time who said this. Uh, also, if you read Philo's tract on the migration of Abraham, he thinks the same thing. He also thinks Abraham received the call before he left Ur of the Chaldees. Okay, so what we could do with that is I think I've got two solutions in my head. Maybe you have others. Either. We read Genesis 11, where Abraham already moves to Haran. And then we go to Genesis 12, and we say, well, this is like we're, we're going back. What, what do we call that? We're flashing back. Maybe this is a flashback to before uh, Abraham left during the Chaldeans. Maybe that's what's happening. Maybe the author of Genesis is flashing back in Genesis 12. OK, that's one idea. The second idea is maybe uh, maybe Abraham received Sort of two calls, right? Maybe he's in or the Chaldees, God says, leave, go to this other place. Abraham gets halfway there and says, I think I'll just stop here in inherit And then God has to say again, no, no, you haven't quite gotten there. Uh, And then he calls him again. And maybe that's what we read in Genesis 12. Maybe there's two calls. That's one possible solution. Or maybe Genesis 12 is a flashback. All right, um, so that's, that's one problem. The other problem, was Terah still alive? If you read Genesis, I mean, it's clear, just out of the ages, and it's clear Terah was still alive in the Bible you have, I bet. Right? Uh, I bet in the Bible you have Terah was still alive, if you add of the ages. Uh, let's see. Let me see. What, what is the verse? Let's go back there and read it. This is uh, so Genesis 12. Where it says, I think it says, Terah died when he was 205 years old. Yeah. 1132. Oh, 1132. Thank you. Terah lived two, 205 years and died in here. Now, if you add up all the ages, it's pretty clear he would still be alive when Abraham left. Now, This might be a textual issue. uh, Because other texts, we use the Masoretic text for us. I can explain what that means if anybody wants me to, but I'm going to assume you know what that means. I mean, maybe not everybody does. We, We use the traditional Hebrew text. That's what the Masoretic text is. Which says 205 years. There are other texts that say 145 years. Kara was 145 years old when he died. What I'm saying is other Hebrew texts of Genesis uh, that say this, besides the traditional one. Now, if he was 145 when he died, well then, yeah, it looks like he would have died the very year Abraham left, in that case. Now, I don't know what you want to do with that for the text of Genesis, but it seems to me that what we should conclude is Stephen was reading a text that said... Terah was 145 when he died. He's not the only one. I can also point to Philo on this as well, in his tract on the migration of Abraham, said as well that Terah was dead by the time Abraham moved because he was 145 when he died. All right? I, I'm, we can go come back to that if you all want to ask me anything about that. I mean, it's a, it's a tough issue, right? This is not easy, but I want you to be aware of it. Uh, the second, uh, issue. Well, yeah, second one. How many people went down to Egypt? This is 714. Uh, Stephen says there are 75. How many does your Bible say in the Old Testament? 70. All right? So this is uh, Acts 714. Joseph invited his brother Jacob and all his relatives, 75 people in all. Now, if you turn to your Old Testament, Uh, you will find that it actually says 70 people went down. This is Genesis 46, verse 27. Exodus 1, verse 5. Deuteronomy 10, verse 22. Those are the three passages in the Old Testament where it says, here's how many of Jacob's descendants went down into Egypt. All three of them say 70. 70. You got those verses? You want me to read them again? Cool? Okay, so those are the verses. Now, however... If you are reading the Septuagint, Genesis 46 verse 27 says 75. The Hebrew text says 70, the Septuagint says 75. Exodus 1 verse 5, the Hebrew text says 70, the Septuagint says 75. But Deuteronomy 10 verse 22, the Hebrew text says 70, and the Septuagint says 70. So a little bit of a problem. But, okay, so there are some texts, the Septuagint, that say 75 people went down. Now, again, it looks to me like Stephen's reading one of those texts. That's what's going on. Uh, Both of the numbers sort of work out. Here's how it works. Um, 70, this comes in Genesis um, Genesis 46, 27. This comes, this number, the citation of the number, In the Hebrew, it's 70. The citation of the number comes right after an accounting. Here's all the people that went down 66 people are named. Okay, 66 people. And then if you want to get to 70, what you do is you add Jacob, you add Joseph, and you add Ephraim and Manasseh. Okay, voila, you have 70. If you want to get to 75, what you do is you you get those 66, and then you, you omit Jacob, and you omit Joseph, and you add the nine sons of Joseph that are mentioned in the Septuagint of Genesis 46, 27. Okay, does that make sense, how that works? So both numbers could be sort of thought of as accurate. It's just two different numbers. And some of them are in the Hebrew text, and some of them are in the Septuagint. It looks like Stephen, as a Hellenist, has been reading the Septuagint. All right, that's the, I, I'm throwing these out. We're not discussing a whole lot, but uh, that can come up maybe in a little bit. There's another, there are a couple of more,
3: right,
0: that I want to point out. Uh, verse 16, chap, uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 16. Well, going back to verse 15. He and our ancestors died there. That is Jacob. Jacob and our ancestors died in Egypt, Stephen says. Okay, we that's true. Okay, we don't have to worry about that. But verse 16, and were carried back to Shechem and were placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a son of <coughs> silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Eesh. What what story is Stephen talking about? Cave the Cave of Machpelah, the Cave of which is not near Shechem, and who did he buy it from? It was the sons of Heth. This is Genesis twenty-three. Now, Stephen's not completely making this up. I mean, the, there is this other story. If you turn to Genesis thirty-three, it's it's less familiar, but there's this other story in Genesis thirty-three. Uh, Verse 19, this is talking about Jacob now. I'll I'll start, this is Genesis 33, verse 18. After Jacob came from Padanaram, he arrived safely at Shechem in the land of Canaan and camped in front of the city. He purchased a section of the field where he had pitched his tent from the sons of Hamor. It's Jacob who buys this field from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of silver. And he set up an altar there and called it God, the God of Israel. Now, then if you you read on, Jacob tells them in Genesis 49, uh, verses 29 to 32, when he's about to die, he tells his sons, bury me in the cave of Machpelah, not the field he himself had built, but the cave that Abraham had had bought, but the cave that Abraham had bought. Okay? And then it says in chapter Genesis chapter 50, verses 12 to 14, they did that. They buried him in the cave of Machpelah. Okay? So the cave of Machpelah was not near Shechem, and it's not bought from the sons of Hamor. It was some other place and bought from the sons of Heth. Now, who was buried? Joseph, when they carried his bones up. This is in Joshua. Is it Joshua 24? You're my Joshua man, I think <laughs> Joshua 24, right, uh, is where they carried up the bones of Joseph and buried him in the field by Shechem that was bought by Jacob from the sons of Amor. Okay? So if we're reading our Old Testament, these are two separate things. I'm not exactly sure what to do with it, except to say Stephen's painting with a broad brush, and he's just summarizing a lot of history and just... (laughs) I'm not saying he got confused or anything. I'm just saying he wants to cover details really quickly. Okay, that's what I'm saying. Uh, I'm not sure what else to do with it except to say he's he's just covering the details real quickly and uh, he's just summarizing in that sense. Okay, but you might be in a congregation where somebody calls you on it, so I want you to know (laughs) Well, how it works out in the Old Testament. Whatever answer we come up with for why Stephen says it the way he says it, all right, one more problem, and then I'll be done, and we can get to the other. Uh, let's see, 743. This is, in the, this is in the quotation from Amos. Stephen quotes Amos chapter 5
1: to illustrate how rebellious the
0: Israelites have been throughout their history. So, this is a, a, a Acts chapter 7, verse 42. God turned away and gave them up to worship the stars of heaven as written in the book of the prophets. Now he's quoting Amos chapter 5 verses 25 to 27. House of Israel, did you bring me offerings and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God Rephan the images that you made to worship. So I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Now there are a couple of changes that happen. If you go back and read Amos chapter 5, verses 25 to 27, it basically says that, but it's a little bit different. And it's that difference I want to mention. Amos actually says at the end of it, I will send you into exile beyond, what is it, Damascus. OK, let's get inside Amos's head for a second. Why does Amos say, beyond Damascus? What does he mean by that? What, what is beyond? What is he talking about? What is Amos talking about? The Assyrian exile is what, remember Amos? This is an 8th century prophet. He is prophesying to the northern nation of Israel, who that nation is brought to an end in 722 BC when the Assyrians come in and take them into captivity. If we' okay, so the northern nation of Israel, Damascus is up here in Syria, Aram, right? So what he means, what Amos means is you guys, the northern nation of Israel, you're going to be taken into exile beyond Damascus. Okay. Stephen says beyond Babylon, what's he talking? Well, he's talking about the Jewish exile from the Babylonians. I mean, that's the obvious referent uh, for what Stephen means. And so it looks like, to me, he has simply, uh, what, what should I say, made the text relevant to his audience, Okay, Because he's not talking to a bunch of people from the northern nation of Israel. He's talking to a bunch of Jews. And even though Amos himself was talking to the people from the northern nation of Israel, Stephen's not. And so this is, not, this is not something we find in any text. There is no text of Amos that says beyond Babylon. They all say beyond Damascus. OK, so this looks like something Stephen himself has done. Now, I don't think he's like, changing the text of the scripture. I just think he is, like I say, making the text relevant to his audience. I, you know, if they're think about who he's talking to, they would have recognized. the the change and what the point of the change was, right? Yes, we were taken into captivity beyond Babylon because of our sins, because God had gotten fed up with us, uh, and he graciously brought us back from that captivity. All right, so that's a change. I think Stephen himself makes that change. There's a little bit more, though. If you're reading Amos, Amos uh, 5, maybe it's verse 26, Uh, Let's turn there real quick. Uh, I feel bad about going over time, but it's just cutting into your question time, so maybe I shouldn't feel too bad. Um, Okay, Amos 526. Tell you what, let's do a little exercise. Who has the ESV? Okay, we got an ESV and you got an ESV. Okay, you turn Amos 526. All right, read that bit and you read Acts Seven forty-three. So let's do Amos five twenty-six.
3: You shall take up Sikath, your king, and use your star god, your images that you made for your, you yourselves.
2: Okay. Thank you. You took up the ten of Molech and the star of your god Refan, the images that you made, uh, you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So we
0: have what is it? You, you say it again, Sikath? Okay, Sikath and Kegun, and Tint of Moloch. All right, so we have, a- Acts chapter 7 says just something different right, from what we have in the Hebrew text of Amos chapter 5, verse 26. It's just worded differently. Now, the reason for that is the Hebrew text, like Sikath which our Hebrew text, it's a proper name, Sikath. But it is very close. You've heard of this holiday maybe this Jewish holiday called Sukkot. Have you heard of that? That's the Jew, that's the Hebrew term for the feast feast of tabernacles. That's what that is. The feast of booths. The Hebrew word is Sukkot. So Sikkoth and Sukkot, what's the difference there? It's basically like the vowels are different. You know that the vowels are not actually written in the Hebrew text in the original
3: So this is like a
0: different way of pronouncing the word. In one way, the Hebrew text it reads as if it's a proper name. In another way, it reads as if it's this common noun. And sicketh your king, right, is what uh, Amos 526. King, What's anybody know the Hebrew word for king? Melech. Melech is the Hebrew word for king, which sounds a whole lot like moloch, right? So what I'm saying is the Hebrew text is actually able to be If you just stick different vowels in there, you arrive at these different readings. Maybe he's talking about some god, and calling that god your king. Or maybe he means, like, tent of this other (coughs) god named Moloch. At any rate, the Greek translators, this is the Septuagint again. The Septuagint um, translates it about the the tent of Moloch, Okay. So that's a different way of reading the Hebrew. Both could be legitimate, but the Hebrew text that we have usually had has it as your king, as a proper name, as this god. And then the, the Greek text has it as the other way that Stephen quotes the Greek text. Okay. The other little difference there is, what was it, Kaiwan and Rephon. And again, this is, this is in the Septuagint. This is not something Stephen is doing. It's something he gets from the Septuagint. Taiwan, I think, is a Babylonian star god. Rephon is an Egyptian star god. So it looks like they just sort of made the change there to make it more relevant. That would be something like saying Zeus and Jupiter. You know, Zeus is in the Greeks, but if we're Romans, we'll talk about Jupiter, and it's basically the same thing. So we'll just, you know, make that change. So it goes from Taiwan to to Rephon in that sense. And again, Stephen is using the scepter. So those are the the four sort of textual issues I wanted to bring out in Stephen's speech. There might be a few others. I think those are the main ones that make, again, make some aspects of his speech a little bit difficult if you're tracking how he uses the Old Testament. Sorry I uh, went a little long there, but it looks like to me we've got ten minutes left. So, uh,
3: yeah. When I was in Israel, our Jewish guide said uh, Hebrew names have four levels which I can't remember all of them. But um, I interpreted from that that it would be easy to do a play on words yes, appropriate to your audience. Because there is a literal meaning and figurative meaning. And then there's two other levels, which he went into, and did. I don't okay. write it yeah. down. But it's sort of like... Um, a stand-up comic could almost, they, they do double meanings all the time. And I'm just wondering if he's not playing to the audience in this. Yeah,
0: I, that's a good suggestion. Certainly the like, puns are in the Old Testament. I, I don't want to say all over the place, but there, there are plenty of them. And that's one of the valuable parts of knowing a little bit of Hebrews because you can recognize those things a little bit more easily.
3: The other aspect of this speech, though, reminds me of stories that Garrison Keillor tells. He starts with a point, and then he goes off on this big circle, comes back. Yeah. And the punchline's at the end. But you think, where is he going with this story? he, He parallels sort of spiritually where they are. By doing an illustration rather than just a direct accusation.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. And I think legally we have to say we do not endorse everything Gary Sequin has ever done. <laughs> <Hopefully> <laughs> <we're not>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, I just want to cut the late printer some <laughs> <laughs> Something that's made this easier on me is with, with students, and they ask those type of questions that have looked back. We see that Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit subsequent to this speech, not as a preface to this speech. And it's kind of like the blind man in John 9 and 10 when he says, "God, we know that God doesn't hear the prayers of sinners. Well, that man's not speaking by inspiration when he says that. That may be a tradition of the Jews. But for a lot of students, they see this speech and say, well, wait a minute, Stephen had to be inspired in making this speech. The other side of it, Stephen could be speaking from Jewish tradition like Philo and other things, that he sees it, or as the New Testament authors do, modify prophecy to fit the situation but I don't know that it necessarily means that Stephen was inspired in this speech and therefore kept to accuracy or providing a new lesson from God that changed the Old Testament. I mean, the fact that he was full of spirit just before he died doesn't, to me, necessitate that he was speaking by authority of the Holy Spirit in giving what would have been an act. The Jews that heard this were like, yeah, that's how we've heard our history. Mm-hmm. In Philo and in reading from the Septuagint, And Targums and other things that would have come along. I just don't know that we should enslave this speech to all this apologetic stuff to say we've got to prove it to be accurate and make these parallels. Stephen was just relating a story that, that we recognize, just as American history is sometimes related in ways that we may recognize we may not be accurate. And so I don't know how you feel about that, and I probably will get stoned to death for what I just said. I just, I don't know that every speech, I think Luke was inspired in accurately recording this speech, even if he wasn't present to hear it, which in all reality, he probably wasn't present to hear this speech. So I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's accurately recorded. But I don't know that Stephen was speaking by inspiration, nor does I know that the text necessarily says that.
0: Okay, yeah, I mean, I guess there are different ways of, of working through these issues, and I think that is one of them. I, I was thinking, doesn't it say before the speech yeah, that he was yeah, full of the Holy Spirit? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. So, not like maybe immediately, but sort of as a general. Yeah, and I'm not saying he of, wasn't. I'm just yeah. saying that
1: we, we put that as a preface to the speech. Yeah, yeah. It's really a okay. yeah maybe so. I, I do feel like, though, that Luke
0: presents this speech. I mean, I, I think it would be surprising to Luke to learn that uh, there are things in here that uh, we can't exactly agree with Luke. It seems to me just the way that, uh, you know, it's the longest speech in Luke acts. Luke himself, it seems to me, thinks, you know, he thinks this is important. And um, i like to say, I think he would be surprised to learn that there are things we can't agree with, which which makes me a little hesitant to go the route you're saying. Does that make sense? Well, I think Luke would have
1: thought that history was very accurate. (laughs) <laughs> okay. So he would probably agree with everything. All right. I
0: guess, yeah, how the Holy Spirit relates to what Luke thought, yeah. then... Yeah, um, I'm probably wrong. It's a little... You probably wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, where there's there two <laughs> Jews, there's yeah, two Yeah, Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, you're... Like Tephia says in Root, you're right and you're right. And they can't both be right. Well, you're right, too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was just going to... Um, also, we got to realize that Luke may not be, more than likely is not, recording word for word exactly what Stephen said. Like, I don't think he recorded word for word necessarily everything that Peter said back in Acts 2. And so there may be some more explanation about beyond Babylon when he mm-hmm. says those things. I think uh, Luke's recording what we need to know, but yeah, after, I mean, that's the true. historians don't always... Give a verbatim transcript when they are even recording history. They say, "Well, this is what he talked about, and this is maybe that's some of it." In
0: yeah, the I mean, yeah. Just to highlight that point, that it, it's not necessarily a direct transcript of everything Stephen said, because I mean, it's the longest speech of Luke's. But I mean, it's still a re- very long. If you read through it, what does it take you? Four minutes. Right. I mean, it's not like a a full blown sermon. Uh, so yeah, you're right. Okay. That, it's more, you know, some, sometimes the epistle of the Hebrews is, you know, classified as, as a homily, as a sermon. You read through that, hey, that's 45 minutes. That's, that's more like it. You know, all these sermons that we have in Acts are probably summations of what was said, and not word-for-word word transcripts, I would imagine. I'm not at all saying they're not inspired. but the inspired summations of what was said. Did you want to say anything
2: else, or is that? No, I, yeah, I was that's just comments. because you know he may have explained more things than than we give him credit for, and yeah, the historical Stephen in that context may exactly.
0: probably said more stuff. Right. That would help us to understand. Un, understand. What maybe he did
2: understand that. the argument that was against him. Maybe understand what he's saying here and all those things. Yeah. But we're yeah, not that's a good. To that. point. Yes. Is it a safe
3: assumption? that when, when uh, Stephen substitutes Babylon for Damascus, that his audience would have
1: been familiar enough with the passage to know what he was doing, and accept it, you know, that he's not trying to put something over on them. He's doing a little bit of, uh, you know, imagine it relevant and mm-hmm. people understand they're not being duped. Oh yeah, I see how that could connect. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I think that's a good suggestion that, I mean, when we think about who his audience was, I mean, he's dragged before the Sanhedrin, for Pete's sake. Uh, I mean, if anyone should know scripture, it should be these guys. I would imagine they have studied Amos a time or two. And uh, so yeah, uh, you know, we might, it might be hard to judge. What did those people in Acts chapter 2, the audience, what would they have known? I mean, there's so many of them, and I mean, that might have been hard to judge as far as scripture. But these particular guys in Acts chapter 7, they should know their scripture better than anybody. And so it, it does seem to me this is not a case where, where I mean, why would he even dupe them in this way? What would he hope to accomplish by? Uh, so that doesn't quite make sense either. But it seems to me that he's he's, making the text relevant in a way that they would recognize the change and recognize the point of the change, right? That Amos was actually talking to the northern tribes, but Stephen is is making this relevant to us who were, our ancestors were exiled to Babylon and that kind of thing. So yeah, that's the way I look at this. I, I would like to know for sure, and unfortunately, we can't know exactly why that word appears where it does. But that seems to me a pretty good suggestion.
1: In another minute, yeah. Just a just a thought on verse 15 and Acts chapter six. We didn't spend a lot of time on it, but uh, Stephen's appearance, yeah, it, it was amazing, and how Luke recorded it. Uh, they
0: knew they were dealing with the real deal here because that's what happened to Moses. Oh, okay, yeah. I I hadn't made that connection. You're thinking of the the glowing of the face, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess that might be what Luke is thinking about in describing his appearance in this way that if Moses would come down from the mountain and his face would glow. Yeah, that's a, that's a good suggestion. Thank you. For that. All right, anything else?
3: Well, I hope it was helpful. Thank you for your attention, your feedback. I enjoyed the uh, give and take.